0: Uh, Let's take a look at Psalm 87. If I could get you to stand while we read God's Word. Psalm 87. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people's. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. And let me pray for us before we talk about it further this morning. Heavenly Father, we stop for a minute to pray because we need you. Father, we need you as the author of these words to be their great teacher. To be Holy Spirit the great applier of these words. Would you please work in spite of in spite of my sin, in spite of my faithlessness, in spite of all of our shortcomings. Would you work in spite of our distracted hearts? Would you work in spite of our guilty consciences? In fact, would you work in a sense because of those to heal us, to point us to you, to your grace and your mercy in Jesus? And Father, we pray this in his name. Amen. A little while ago, while I was working on the sermon, I read a, a story in the news that was actually not about something awful, which in some sense is newsworthy in and of itself. And it was about two high school students that, uh, that are best friends. Uh, they're in Arkansas. There's a guy named Brandon Qualls and a guy named Tanner Wilson. And Brandon uh, is in a wheelchair, and he's always had uh, sort of the basic hand-operated model so that, you know, he has to propel himself. But he'd always wanted a a nice electric one so that he wouldn't get so worn out throughout the course of his day at school. And of course, his best friend Tanner, being his best friend, knew that. And so, without Brandon having any idea, for two years, Tanner saved up every dime that he made in his part time job, and he surprised him by buying him an electric wheelchair. It was a beautiful story. And I want you to to imagine being in that position, being Brandon, the one that got the wheelchair from his best friend. Uh, I want you to imagine that moment where you realize that this person whom you know loves you. When you have that moment that you realize that their love for you is actually a lot bigger than you've ever realized. You know that you know he's your friend, but now you realize that it goes far deeper than you've ever thought about. Have you ever had an experience like that? It made me think of, uh, and, and a number of you, I'm sure can identify, that when you start having kids, when you start having kids and you realize what's involved in that, the, the, the sacrifice that goes into that, at some point, hopefully, it dawns on you that this is what your parents did for you. And you might have had a moment where you realize, I've always known my parents love me, but now I'm getting this taste that their love for me is a lot deeper than I've ever realized. I think that's what this psalm is about. I think that this psalm helps us feel the love of God. Now, certainly they all do in some way or another, but I think this one in particular does. Uh, last semester with Ruf, we studied through the Psalms, and our theme was every week was dealing with feeling, dealing with our feelings, because the Psalms are they're songs, and that's what songs do, right? They they traffic in emotion, they help us to understand our emotions, they help us to um, express what we feel, they can even help shape our emotions, and what we feel. And the Psalms, of course, do the exact same thing. And I think Psalm 87, in a unique way, helps us to feel the love of God. And it does so by looking at the city of Zion. Now, what is Zion? Zion, very simply, is the city of Jerusalem. It's where God's people would gather together in worship, at the temple, and they would meet very uniquely and specifically with God. And so we're gonna see, I want you to see three things about Zion from this passage. First, we're gonna see how God feels about Zion. Secondly, we're gonna look at who God brings into Zion. And thirdly and finally, we'll see how God brings people into Zion. All right, so first, how God feels about Zion. In Psalm 87, what we see, uh, very simply, uh, look at verse 2. It says that the Lord loves the gates of Zion. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. He loves His people. He likes, He loves being with them more than anything else. All throughout the Bible, the way that the way the Bible talks about how God loves his people is really amazing. If you, if you sort of step back and take a look at it, the big themes, you get the picture of how uh, that God loves his people like a husband loves a wife. You get the, you get the picture of uh, God loves his people the way a parent loves a child. You get the picture of God loving his people... Uh, that they are his uh, prized treasure, his inheritance, what, what makes him feel rich. He really loves his people. I had a friend, this was years ago, uh, back in Oxford, Mississippi. He was sitting at a coffee shop, and he was, a, uh, he was a youth director at a church in town. And he's sitting there having his coffee, and this uh, older gentleman came up to him, and he said, he said, son, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And he said, yes, I do, actually. And they uh, started to talk. And one of the first things that this guy said to him, he said, then do you know that God has a picture of you in his wallet? And he just loves to walk around heaven and show it to people. Because he loves you. Now, look, I don't know that that God literally does that. But I think you get the idea, right? It might be a little cheesy, but I think the illustration serves that God really does love his people. He has real affection for his people. He doesn't just tolerate them. He doesn't just let them be in his kingdom and and serve out their time. He really does love his people. And now look, especially if you grew up in church, that might tend to slide right right past us, right? Be sort of the, uh, you know, can't believe I came to church to hear that God loves his people. Of course, I, I know that. But I think we've got to take a second and think about what or who Zion really is. Because Zion or Jerusalem, Israel, however we want to talk about God's people, they are not a lovable people. In fact, their track record throughout the Old Testament is terrible. Terrible. They're regularly worshiping other gods. God saves them, and they worship other gods. He saves them, and they worship other gods. They're regularly doubting him. Second Kings 21 tells us about a king named Manasseh. He was king in Judah, where Jerusalem is for a while. And it says that he led his people so far astray from God that they were actually worse than all the other nations. They were sacrificing their children to a god named Molech. Second Kings twenty one, it says, they, God says they are worse than the other people. So the fact, the fact that God loves Zion, can't be this sort of nice little churchy thing that we just sort of, you know, chalk up. And of course, we know that it's an amazing fact. And what it does is it shows us that God, he loves his people, and it really is for free. It's really by grace that he loves his people. So what does that mean for us? Well, from what we see in the New Testament, Zion is a picture of the church. It's a picture of his people here and now. And so what we have to keep in mind is that that means that's actually a picture of us if you're a believer, that God really, he really does truly love his people and have real affection for his people. But the only way that you and I are going to find that to be wonderful is if we realize the truth that we're not naturally lovable people. That you and I, and we're going to flesh this out a little bit more in a minute, but You and I don't come into this world naturally, in one sense, attractive to God. We come into this world sinners. But God's love is still there, and it's still for free. And so it means that he loves me and you by grace, not by something that we do. He just loves for free. And we're going we're gonna to dive into that throughout the rest of this, our time this morning, but I want to give one other quick thought about this, this part. Did you notice there in verse 2 that it says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And So I want to stop for just a second and talk about what, what does that mean, more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And it's basically saying that as much as God loves his people individually, like, we, like we've been talking about, that as much as, and he absolutely does, as much as he loves individual people, that there is a very, uh, that God uniquely loves his people when they come together as a people, when they're gathered together corporately. And so, again, for, for us, that's the church. That's this right here, what we're doing this morning. It means that God's love is, is it's present in, it's felt in, and for you and I, it's experienced in a very unique way when we're gathered together as the church. So I think the applications are pretty simple. If you're looking, no matter who you are, if you're, if you're a believer, certainly, and if you're not a believer, which we're really glad that you're here with us, if, if you are looking to experience the love of God then you're going to find that in the church. And now we might, and look, we could put a thousand qualifiers on that. Look, I'm not saying that, that the church is going to be what saves you. Jesus saves you. And we're not saying that outside of the church, uh, you can't experience the love of God in any way. That's not what I'm saying. But if you want to experience God's love, maybe afresh, uh, again, or in a deeper way, or for the first time, then doesn't it make sense to experience, you're going to experience that and find that where he has said, and it's in the church. And so if you're, if you're a visitor and you're thinking about coming back, then I especially want you to hear that. I want that to be an invitation to you to come back and to be a part of this. That God loves his people, and he, there is something unique about this. As messy as it is, As screwed up as it can be, there's something very unique about God's love that's expressed in the church. All right, so we see how God feels about His people, and now let's take a look at how, uh, rather, at who God brings into Zion. And we see this is in verses four through six, and this is going to help us to see a little bit. It's going to help us to begin to feel the depth. of God's love for us as we look at who the residents of Zion really are. And as we read through this, as we read through Psalm 87, it may not have been very shocking to you, but for the original hearers of this, I can guarantee you that this was probably scandalous. So why is that? Look, you've got to understand who these uh, these nations that are listed here got To look at who they are. Rahab is another word for Egypt. So Egypt was Israel, God, God's people, was their first big enemy, right? They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and then you have the whole Exodus story. And then it talks about Babylon. Babylon was essentially Israel's last major enemy in the Old Testament, right? They come in, they exile them, take them, take them over, and take them off into their country. Philistia. Who's that? That's the Philistines, right? The Philistines that are always fighting against Israel. So in other words, all of these nations that are listed are enemies of God and his people. They're the enemies. They're the bad guys. So do you see how this begins to point and reveal that God really does love us, love people in a much bigger way? Because right? it shows us that God doesn't just love people that are bad. He loves people that have sworn that he is their enemy. And yet God loves the enemy. It's not something that you see very often, but when you do see it, it's an incredibly powerful thing for someone to love the one that's vowed to hate them. Uh, I recently learned about a story from World War II. That happened on uh, December 20th, 1943. There was a, uh, an American B-17 bomber, and it was part of this big mission bombing Germany, and they came under heavy fire from the ground, from the air, all over. The D- mission just went sideways. And this, this one air, aircraft, B-17, just gets torn apart. It just gets shredded. There are, uh, most of the crew's dead. The plane is... It's, essentially a miracle, it's still in the air, I think it was limping on one engine, and it gets out of the fight and is going to try to, try to make it to safety, and uh, it was apparently making its way that way, and one German fighter, uh, fighter pilot, saw it getting out of the fight, and he took after him, and he got behind him, and he was just about to end him, which would have been really easy. And as he got close enough to him, and now keep in mind, right, it's easy, I think, for us to hear this story and to, think, to sort of think, well, he was good to the Americans, so he's the good guy. But remember, this is a German fight. So if you're, if you're a German, the Americans are the enemy. This is the guy that's showing up in your country, killing your people. So he gets behind this guy, and he's about to take him out. And what he sees, he sees, he can see dead people in the plane. He can, he can see that this thing should not be in the air. And he basically has pity on him. And so somehow he, he pulls up beside him and he basically somehow indicates to him, stay with me and I'll get you out of here. And he leads him essentially puts him on the right trajectory to get back to England, and they made it. And you can, you can actually go, and uh, it's on YouTube, look it up, and you can see uh, interviews between these two pilots from when they met, year, uh, decades later, and it is, it's amazing. But it's this beautiful story, because you don't see stuff like that very often. You don't see someone love their enemy, and it's amazing and, and I hope that you see that that, as powerful as that story is, is actually just a taste of what we see in this passage about how God loves his enemies. He loves people, and he, he brings people in that hate him. It's those people that he says, you're included. And I want you to think about this. How can this be a song that God would want his people to sing? Or how could this be a song, a psalm, that God's people would ever want to sing? Right, it's odd, isn't it? Celebrating the fact that the enemies are being brought in. And I think the answer to that is the only way that they would ever be able, be willing and even desirous to sing a song like this, is if they realize what's true about them if they realize that those enemies are not any worse than they are. Or we could flip it around. That they're not any better than the enemies of God's people and of God himself. And look, the same is true for us. Right? Have you realized that about yourself? Have you realized that every one of us was born into this world that we all default to thinking of God as our enemy. And now look, it, that's, not, that's, that's not something that we conscious, probably consciously think or say. Right? You very well might be thinking, like, I don't think of God as my enemy. Right? It's, it's rarely a conscious, I hate you. But more often it looks like, right, God is the king of Everything. And we essentially look at life and say, no, I want to be the king of everything. Or at least want to be the king of my life. And so I'm going to deal with my life. I'm going to deal with my money. I'm going to deal with my family. I'm going to deal with my sexuality. I'm going to deal with my eating and drinking. I'm going to deal with whatever the way I want to deal with it. And I don't care what you say. And that's, that's functionally to be an enemy of God. My former, one of my former campus ministers with RUF used to say that we all flip both middle fingers in God's face. That's who we are. It can look like us deciding that, that we're going to have what we have or be who we are by our own efforts and not by what God uh, does for us. But listen to couple of verses in Romans, Romans 5, 8, uh, and then uh, 10 and following says, but God shows, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Right, it's amazing to see the love of a friend for a friend, right? Brandon and Tanner, and that story about the wheelchair, it was beautiful. But have you seen, have you seen that, God, that God really does love you, even though you have declared him to be your enemy? And look, the more that you do begin to, to see that, the more that that begins to really take root in your, in your heart, the more you begin to look around and see, I really, I really do reject God in so many ways, and yet he really does love me the more that gets down into you, the more it's going to change how you and I look at our enemies, right? The more it's going to affect how we treat other people, especially especially when we'll say those people. Whoever those people are, right? Because if God has had love and mercy on his enemies, which is us, then certainly that's going to change how we, have, how we treat the people that have... Uh, that have offended us in some way. So who is that for you? Who are those people? Who are the ones that you just, you just can't handle? Right? Uh, maybe it's, it might be the Democrats or the Republicans. Uh, it, might be, it might be non-believers. It might be p- uh, people of a different denomination or people of a different theological persuasion. It might be the homosexual community. It might be rich people, or it might be poor people, right? It might be people that root for a different sports team. It might be people that live on a different street. We could go on and on. But God brings in his enemies and actually loves them. And the more that we really believe that he's done that for us, the more we're going to begin to look at at those people And begin to bring them in, right? All right, so we see who God brings in, which is enemies like us. So, thirdly and finally, I want to take a minute and look, I want to look at how God brings in people to Zion. And again, this is in verses four through six. Uh, Right, the psalm helps us to feel the love of God even deeper and deeper because it shows us that not only does He love bad people, And not only does he love people that are his enemies, but the way in which he brings them in is amazing. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. You see it repeated. When he's speaking about these enemy nations, he says, this one was born there. And he's talking about born in Zion. So do you see what he's saying? That God is talking about people that were born in Babylon. Right? The enemy and he says, no, 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 you weren't born in Babylon. You were born right here. You're not one of them. You are, but now you're not. You were born right in the middle of, of, of me and my kingdom. You're from here. right?" He gives these people a new identity. He gives them a new life. It's a picture of God adopting his enemies into his family. It's an amazing picture. They're not his enemies. They're his kids. They're his children. I uh, give you a little, I'm going to give you a little, uh, I guess, life tip that I actually learned from from being here at Redeemer. Uh, if you ever get the chance to go to an adoption hearing, you need to take it. Uh, if you have some friends that are uh, adopting, and the you know the, the court proceedings are that day, and they you know they invite you, uh, no doubt you're gonna you'll be you you're gonna intend to go, and then think like, well, I am busy. I could go to this, but I could do I don't know. Go, because it is beautiful. I've been to three or four now since we've moved to Redeemer, and they are amazing experiences because of what because of what happens right when a when a, a family adopts someone right they take someone that, that was not born in their family and they take someone and it's typically out of a not so great circumstance and they bring them into their family and they are legally declared to be theirs And they even they, they change their last name. They get a new identity. Sometimes they even change their first names. And it is absolutely beautiful. And I want, you, I, want to, I want you to think about this. Why do they do that? And by that, I mean, why do they change their name? And they change their name because they're, it's this beautiful... Um, expression to say, you weren't born there. You were born right here. You are us. You're one of us now. You were born here. And that's what this psalm is showing us. That God loves his enemies in such a way that he doesn't just not destroy them. Right? Think about our, our, our friend Was it, Franz. Stigler, the, the German fighter pilot. It was beautiful that he loved his enemy. He didn't, he didn't kill him. He sent him on his way. But he, he didn't adopt him into his family. Right? You get the picture that God says, I love my enemies and I do it by saying, you are mine. Gives them a totally new life. It's what Jesus talks about in John 3 when he talks with Nicodemus. Jesus tells Nicodemus that if somebody's going to be a part of the kingdom of God, then they have to be born again. And the Greek is is ambiguous, if you remember studying that passage. Uh, It's either born again or born from above, and it seems to be that the answer to that is, which is it? Yes, it's both, right? Jesus tells us about the possibility, about the reality of a new life that God gives us, it's a new birth, a new beginning, a new a new reality, and it comes from above, it comes from Him. That God invites His enemies, regardless of how big of an enemy you were, regardless of what you've done, regardless of how militant you were against Him, and He gives you this whole new reality. So let me just end with this, with this. How does that happen? What's that new reality? John 3, 14 and following says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son You see what that's saying, that that God loved the world so much that he gave his son. And he gave his son to, to take our place. That Jesus was rejected on our behalf. So that you and I get to be accepted as the true child of God that Jesus was and is. So that you and I get to be in the family. And not enemies anymore. And that's the good news. That's the great news. And that's what's offered to you this morning. And I pray that you take it maybe for the first time. The good news of Jesus. Let me pray for us.